Section number two of A General View of Positivism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A General View of Positivism by Auguste Comte, translated by John Henry Bridger. Chapter one, The Intellectual Character of Positivism, part two. To give such paramount importance to this portion of the subject may seem at first slightly inconsistent with the proposition just laid down that the strength of the intellectual faculties is far inferior to that of the other elements of our nature it is quite certain that feeling and activity have much more to do with any practical step that we may make than pure reason in attempting to explain this paradox we come at last to the peculiar difficulty of this great problem of human unity the first condition of unity is a subjective principle and this principle in the positive system is the subordination of the intellect to the heart. Without this, the unity that we seek can never be placed on a permanent basis, whether individually or collectively. It is essential to have some influence sufficiently powerful to produce convergence amid the heterogeneous and often antagonistic tendencies of so complex an organism as ours. But this first condition, indispensable as it is, would be quite insufficient for the purpose without some objective basis existing independently of ourselves in the external world. That basis consists for us in the laws of order of the phenomenon by which humanity is regulated. The subjection of human life to this order is incontestable, and as soon as the intellect has enabled us to comprehend it, it becomes possible for the feeling of love to exercise a controlling influence over our discordant tendencies. This then is the mission allotted to the intellect in the positive synthesis. In this sense it is that it should be consecrated to the service of the heart. I have said that this conception of human unity must be totally inadequate and indeed cannot deserve the name so long as it does not embrace every element of our nature. But it would be equally fatal for the completeness of this great conception to think of human nature irrespectively of what lies outside it. A purely subjective unity without any objective basis would be simply impossible. In the first place any attempt to coordinate man's moral nature without regard to the external world, supposing the attempt feasible, would have very little permanent influence on our happiness, whether collectively or individually since happiness depends so largely upon our relations to all that exists around us. Besides this, we have to consider the exceeding imperfections of our nature. Self-love is deeply implanted in it, and when left to itself is far stronger than social sympathy. The social instincts would never gain the mastery were they not sustained and called into constant exercise by the economy of the external world, an influence which at the same time checks the power of the selfish instincts. By the selfish affections are controlled, the unselfish strengthened. To understand this economy aright, we must remember that it embraces not merely the inorganic world, but also the phenomena of our own existence. The phenomena of all human life, though more modifiable than any others, are yet equally subject to the invariable laws, laws which form the principal objects of positive speculation. Now the benevolent affections, which themselves act in harmony with the laws of social development, incline us to submit to all other laws as soon as the intellect has discovered their existence. 
The possibility of moral unity depends, therefore, even in the case of the individual, but still more in that of society, upon the necessity of recognizing our subjection to an external power. By this means our self-regarding instincts are rendered susceptible of discipline. In themselves they are strong enough to neutralize all sympathetic tendencies, were it not for the support that the latter find in the external order. Its discovery is due to the intellect which thus enlists it in the service of feeling, and with the ultimate purpose of regulating action. Thus it is that an intellectual synthesis or systematic study of the laws of nature is needed on a far higher ground than those of satisfying our theoretical faculties, which are for the most part very feeble even in men who devote themselves to a life of thought. It is needed because it solves at once the most difficult problem of our moral synthesis. The higher impulses within us are brought under the influence of a powerful stimulus from without. By its means they are enabled to control our discordant impulses and to maintain a state of harmony towards which they have always tended, but which, without such aid, could never be realized. Moreover, this conception of the order of nature evidently supplies the basis for a synthesis of human action, for the efficacy of our action depends entirely on their conformity to this order. But this part of the subject has been fully explained in my previous work, and I need not enlarge upon it further. As soon as the synthesis of mental conceptions enables us to form a synthesis of feelings, it is clear that there will be no very serious difficulties in constructing a synthesis of actions. Unity of action depends upon unity of impulse and unity of design, and thus we find that the coordination of human nature as a whole depends ultimately on the coordination of mental conceptions, a subject which seemed at first of comparatively slight importance. The subjective principle of positivism, that is, the subordination of the intellect to the heart, is thus fortified by an objective basis, the immutable necessity of the external world, and by this means it becomes possible to bring human life within the influence of social sympathy. The superiority of the new synthesis to the old is even more evident under this second aspect than it was under the first. In theological systems, the objective basis was supplied by spontaneous belief in a supernatural will. Now, whatever the degree of reality attributed to these fictions, they all proceeded from a subjective source, and therefore their influence in most cases must have been very confused and fluctuating. In respect of moral discipline, they cannot be compared either for precision or for force or stability to the conception of invariable order actually existing without us and attested, whether we will or no, by every act of our existence. Our conception of the external order has been gradually growing from the earliest times, and it is but just complete. The fundamental doctrine of positivism is not to be attributed in the full breadth of its meanings to any single thinker. It is the slow result of a vast process carried out in separate departments, which began with the first use of our intellectual powers, and which is only just completed in those who exhibit those powers in their highest form. During the long period of her infancy, humanity has been preparing this most precious of her intellectual attainments as the basis for the only system of life which is permanently adapted to our nature. The doctrine has to be demonstrated in all the more essential cases from observation only, except so far as we admit argument from analogy. 
deductive argument is not admissible except in such cases are evidently compounded of others which the proof has been given as sufficient. Thus, for instance, we are not authorised by sound logic to assert the existence of laws of weather, though most of these are still, and perhaps always will be, unknown. For it is clear that the meteorological phenomena result from a combination of astronomical, physical and chemical influences, each of which has been proved to be subject to invariable laws. But in all phenomena, which are not thus reducible, we must have course to inductive reasoning. For a principle which is the basis of all deduction cannot itself be deduced. Hence it is that the doctrine being so entirely foreign as it is to our primitive mental state requires such a long course of preparation. Without such preparation even the greatest thinkers could not anticipate it. It is true that in some cases metaphysical conceptions of a law have been formed before the proof really required had been furnished. But they were never of much service except in so far as they generalised in a more or less confused way the analogies naturally suggested by the laws which had actually been discovered in simpler phenomena. Besides, such assertions always remained very doubtful and very barren in result until they were based upon some outline of a really positive theory. Thus, in spite of the apparent potency of this metaphysical method, to which modern intellects are so addicted, the conception of an external order is still extremely imperfect in many of the most cultivated minds, because they have not verified it sufficiently in the most intricate and important class of phenomena, the phenomena of society. I am not, of course, speaking of the few thinkers who accept my discovery of the principal laws of sociology. Such uncertainty in a subject so closely related to all others produce, produces a great confusion in men's minds, and affects their perception of an invariable order, even in the simplest subjects. A proof of this is the utter delusion to which most geometricians of the present day have fallen with respect to what they call the calculus of chances, a conception which presupposes that the phenomena considered are not subject to law. The doctrine, therefore, cannot be considered as firmly established in any one case until it has been verified specially in every one of the primary categories in which the phenomena may be classed. But now that this difficult condition has really been fulfilled by the few thinkers who have risen to the level of their age, we will have at last a firm objective basis on which to establish the harmony of our moral nature. That basis is, that all events whatever, the events of our own personal and social life included, are always subject to the natural relations of sequence and similitude which in all essential respects lie beyond the reach of our interference. Even when not modifiable, its influence on the character is of the greatest value. This, then, is the external basis of our synthesis, which includes the moral and practical faculties as well as their speculative. It rests at every point on the unchangeable order of the world. The right understanding of this order is the principal subject of our thoughts. Its preponderating influence determines the general course of our feelings, its gradual improvement is the constant object of our actions. To form a more precise notion of its influence, let us imagine for a moment that it really were to cease. The result would be that our intellectual faculties, after wasting themselves in wild extravagancies, would sink rapidly into incurable sloth. Our nobler feelings would be unable to prevent the ascendancy of the lower instincts, and our active powers would abandon themselves to purposeless agitation. 
Men have, it is true, been for a long time ignorant of this order. Nevertheless, we have always been subject to it, and its influence has always tended, though without our knowledge, to control our whole being, our actions first and subsequently our thoughts and even our affections. As we have advanced in our knowledge of it, our thoughts have become less vague, our desires less capricious, our conduct less arbitrary. And now that we are able to grasp the full meaning of the conception, its influence extends to every part of our conduct. For it teaches us that the object to be aimed at in the economy devised by man is wise development of the irresistible economy of nature, which cannot be amended till it is first studied and obeyed. In some departments it has the character of fate, that is, it admits of no modification, but even here, in spite of the superficial objections to which have arisen from intellectual pride, it is necessary for the proper regulation of human life. Suppose, for instance, that man were exempt from the necessity of living on the earth and were free to pass at will from one planet to another. The very notion of society would be rendered impossible by the license which each individual would have to give away to whatever unsettling and distracting impulses his nature might incline him. Our propensities are so heterogeneous and so deficient in elevation that they would keep no fixity or consistency in our conduct but for these insurmountable conditions. Our feeble reason may fret at such restrictions, but without them all its deliberations would be confused and purposeless. We are powerless to create. All that we do in bettering our condition is to modify an order which we can produce no radical change. Supposing us in possession of that absolute independence to which metaphysical pride aspires, it is certain that so far from improving our condition, it would be a bar to all development, whether social or individual. The true path of human progress lies in the opposite direction, in diminishing the vacillation, inconsistency and discordance of our designs by furnishing external motives for those operations of our intellectual, moral and practical powers, of which the original source was purely internal. The ties by which our various diverging tendencies are held together would be quite inadequate for their purpose, without a basis of support in the external world which is unaffected by the spontaneous variations of our nature. But however great the value of positive doctrine in pointing out the unchangeable aspects of the universal order, what we have principally to consider are the numerous departments in which that order admits of artificial modifications. Here lies the most important sphere of human activity. The only phenomena indeed which we are wholly unable to modify are the simplest of all, the phenomena of the solar system which we inhabit. It is true that now we know its laws we can easily conceive them improved in certain respects, but to whatever degree our power over nature may extend we shall never be able to produce the slightest change in them. What we have to do is so to dispose our lives as to submit to these resistless fatalities in the best way we can. And this is comparatively easy, because their greater simplicity enables us to foresee them with more precision and in a more distinct future. Their interpretation by positive science has had a most important influence on the gradual education of the human intellect, and it will always continue to be the source from which we obtain the clearest and most impressive sense of immutability. Too exclusively studied, they might even now lead to fatalism. 
but controlled as their influence will be henceforward by a more philosophic education they may well become a means of moral improvement by disposing us to submit with resignation to all evils which are absolutely insurmountable but in most cases we can modify it and in these the knowledge of it forms the systematic basis of human actions in other parts of the external economy invariability in all primary aspects is found compatible with modifications in points of secondary importance these modifications become more numerous and extensive as the phenomena are more complex the reason of this is that the causes form combination of which the effects proceed more varied and are more accessible they offer greater facilities to our feeble powers to interfere with advantage but all this has been fully explained in my system of positive philosophy the tendency of that work was to show that our intervention became more efficacious in proportion as the phenomena upon which we acted has a, had a closer relation to the life of man or society indeed extensive modifications of which society admits go far to keep up the common mistake that social phenomena are not subject to any constant law at the same time we have to remember that this increased possibility of human intervention in certain parts of the external order necessarily coexists with an increased imperfection for which there is a valuable but very inadequate compensation both features alike result from the increase in complexity even the laws of the solar system are very far from perfect notwithstanding their greater simplicity which indeed makes their defects more perceptible the existence of these defects should be taken into careful consideration not indeed with the hope of amending them but as a check upon unreasoning admiration besides they lead us to clearer conception of the true position of humanity a position of which is the most striking feature is the necessity of struggling against difficulties of every kind lastly by observing these deficits we are likely to waste our time in seeking for absolute perfection and so neglecting the wiser course of looking for such improvements that are really possible in all other phenomena the increasing imperfection of the economy of nature becomes a powerful stimulus to all our faculties whether moral intellectual or practical here we find sufferings which can really be alleviated to a large extent by wise and well-sustained combination of efforts this consideration should give a firmness and dignity of bearing to which humanity could never attain during her period of infancy those who look wisely into the future of society will feel that the conception of man becoming without fear or boast the arbiter within certain limits of his own destiny has in it something far more satisfying than the old belief in providence which implied our remaining passive social union will be strengthened by the conception because everyone will see that union forms our principal resource against the miseries of human life and while it calls out our noblest sympathies it impresses us more strongly with the importance of high intellectual culture being itself the object for which such culture is required these important results have ever been on the increase in modern times yet hitherto they have been too limited and causal to be appreciated rightly except in so far as we could anticipate the future of society by the light of sound historical principles art so far as it is yet organized does not include that part of the economy of nature which being the most modifiable the most imperfect and the most important of all ought 
on every ground to be regarded as the principal object of human exertions. Even medical art, specially so called as it is only just beginning to free itself from its primitive routine. And social art, whether moral or political, is plunged in routine so deeply that few statesmen admit the possibility of shaking it off. Yet of all the arts, it is the one which best admits of being reduced to a system, and until this is done, it will be impossible to place on a rational basis all the rest of our practical life. All these narrow views are due simply to insufficient recognition of the fact that the highest phenomena are as much subject to laws as others. When the conception of the order of nature has become generally accepted in its full extent, the ordinary definition of art will become as comprehensive and as homogeneous as that of science, and it will then become obvious to all sound thinkers that the principal sphere of both art and science is the social life of man. Thus the social services of the intellect are not limited to revealing the existence of an external economy and the necessity of submission in its sway. If the theory is to have any influence on our active powers, it should include an exact estimate of the imperfections of this economy and of the limits within which it varies, so as to indicate and define the boundaries of human intervention. Thus it will always be an important function of philosophy to criticise nature in a positive spirit although the antipathy to theology by which such criticism was formerly animated has ceased to have much interest, from the very fact of having it having done its work so effectually. The object of positive criticism is not controversial. It aims simply at putting the great question of human life in a clearer light. It bears closely on what positivism teaches to be the great end of life, namely the struggle to become more perfect, which implies previous imperfection. This truth is strikingly apparent when applied to the case of our own nature. For true morality requires a deep and habitual consciousness of our natural defects. End of section 2 Recording by Morris in Arsie, Bedfordshire